We're doing jumping jacks on a ledge, 1,800 feet above the valley. One person cannot stop a river from being dammed, but I figure I would try. I was pretty sure that the locals were sandbagging us. I mean, we're in this truck, we're driving down this dark At Patagonia, we are climbers and skiers. We are surfers and anglers. We're activists and dreamers. Stories are the fabric of our shared culture. Visit us at Patagonia.com. Okay, what do these four things have in common? An atlas, a 1995 Jansport backpack big enough to drive a car into, a VHS tape, and a used rope. What's the connection? I don't, I don't expect you to get this one. All these items, they're gifts that changed listeners' lives. For instance, three years ago, Rachel Mueller spent her first unplanned night beneath the stars in the cold, high country of Zion. And if you're a climber, you know that an unplanned bivy, it's kind of like a rite of passage for us. So after that cold night, her partner, Philippe, gave her an atlas, inscribed with this quote, Now that you've learned to sleep on the ground, you'll find that there's a whole lot of ground out there to sleep on. The atlas, well, it became the inspiration for an eight-month, life-changing journey across Asia. That 1995 Jansport backpack? For listener Justin Dix, that backpack, it's come to represent a freedom of sorts. He's carried the backpack all the way from Canada down to the very tip of South America and pretty much every state and country in between. And in a sense, it's become a foundation of who he is, a cornerstone of his independence. The gift that changed my life? Well, my parents passed it along almost as an afterthought. We were living in Washington, D.C., and I must have been 10 years old, and at that point, I was a fanatic about anything National Geographic, the magazines, the movies. And my parents got invited to the... the Centennial Gala Ball, where they were passing out these gift baskets. And when they got home, they, they took the gift basket and they left it on my pillow. And in it was this VHS tape, 100 Years of Exploration, kind of highlighting everything the National Geographic Society had ever done. And I watched that movie until the strands of the tape were worn out. The VCR died. My parents begged me to change the channels. And well, you know the rest. If you think back, I bet at one point or another, you've either given or you've received a gift that changed or steered the course of a life. And when you think about it, that's pretty incredible. So an old climbing rope, not typically something you'd want to re-gift, right? Where does that fit into this story? Today, contributing writer Brendan Leonard brings us a story about a gift that has taken him farther than any plane ticket could have ever. 60 meters has never gone so far. I'm Fitzko Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. There was a box about the size of a microwave sitting underneath the Christmas tree at my parents' house in Iowa in 2004. When I opened it and saw what was inside, I figured it was a pretty weak attempt at a gift. A balled-up rope, no price tags, no packaging. My brother must have cleaned out his closet before going shopping this year, I thought. I said thanks. That Christmas, I was about to turn 26. I had never once been really comfortable in my own skin. 
I had survived the average awkward, depressed American adolescence that comes from not being that good at anything that's important when you're in high school. I wasn't even good at partying until I really started putting some effort into it when I was 18. I was able to drink my way into substance abuse treatment at age 23, a year after barely graduating college. I spent two years in grad school in Missoula, Montana, discovering mountains, and moved to Arizona to live with my girlfriend and to start a short, unspectacular career working for newspapers. Almost three years sober that Christmas, I was still wondering if I'd ever find anything that gave me the confidence I used to find after I'd had eight to twenty drinks. The 60 meters of blue, black, and green 11 millimeter blue water enduro, double dry treated to repel water, certainly didn't inspire confidence, or anything else, really. It's a good rope, Chad said encouragingly. If it was, I didn't know the difference. Problem was, I had no interest in rock climbing before my brother gave me that rope. I actually had no interest in it after he gave me the rope, either. My brother, Chad, had taken some climbing classes at college the previous year, and had really gotten into it. He bought the gear he needed to go climb at a gym. Sticky rubber-soled shoes, a harness, a bag to hold climbing chalk. When he moved to Milwaukee, he figured he'd have a chance to explore the cliffs at Devil's Lake a couple hours away. And outside of the gym, of course, they don't provide the ropes for you. So he bought one. After about a year of not using it, he figured he wasn't going to get around to it. So he piled it into a box, put it beneath the Christmas tree. And that's how I ended up becoming a climber. After the holidays, back at work in an outdoor gear shop in Phoenix, I mentioned to some of the guys that I'd gotten a rope for Christmas. They said, hell, you might as well buy the rest of the gear because the rope's the most expensive piece. So, like my brother before me, I bought some shoes and a harness and a few carabiners, and I counted on the guys from work being good enough to teach me how to climb. Quickly, it became clear that there was another hurdle. Climbing scared the shit out of me. After three sessions at Camelback Mountain and Pinnacle Peak, I decided I'd probably never do it again. I moved to Colorado. I packed the rope with the rest of my growing outdoor gear collection almost as an afterthought. A year after I thought I gave it up for good, I convinced my friend Nick to buy a harness and take a climbing class with me. I had all this gear, why not give it another honest shot? I learned to move up the dusty sandstone at Garden of the Gods with some confidence and less knee-rattling fear. I bought a few more pieces of hardware and an instructional book, trying to gather enough knowledge for Nick and I to go climbing on our own. Like me and my brother before me, Nick assembled the requisite gear. The blind would lead the blind. I researched feverishly. Knots would be essential. I found dozens of knots that could be utilized in climbing. The figure eight, the clove hitch, the girth hitch, the munter hitch, the water knot, the fisherman's knot, the double fisherman's, the triple fisherman's, the overhand, the overhand on a bite, the figure eight on a bite, and more. I flipped through the freedom of the hills in my living room, puzzled, rope piled on my lap, about as successful as Clark Griswold trying to untangle his Christmas lights. At that rate, climbing might be out. Sailing was definitely out. If I couldn't tie a double fisherman's in my apartment, how was I going to figure it out on the side of some 500-foot rock face? I felt a little better when I read that Yosemite and Andy's badass Jim Bridwell, one of America's most renowned climbers, had only employed four knots in his entire career. That seemed more manageable. Four. I could handle that. 
The Freedom of the Hills, in the chapter just after the Knots chapter, also says all kinds of useful stuff like, Climbing belays must be able to resist the large forces generated in a fall. And, stopping a fall as quickly as possible may prevent the falling climber from hitting anything, such as a ledge. I didn't read any of that chapter. I discovered that climbing ropes can withstand forces equivalent to 8 or 10 big climbing falls. When a 175-pound guy falls 30 feet before the rope tightens and stops him in the air, the force distributes along a dynamic rope. You don't break your back when you fall 30 feet and run out of slack in the rope because it stretches a little bit. It shouldn't hurt at all. Like doing a tiny little bungee jump, right? With my brother's old rope, Nick and I were off driving up and down Colorado's front range looking for routes that were easy enough for us to attempt without scaring ourselves too much. We preferred crags that had some 5.7s and 5.8s hopefully with bolted top rope anchors that we could approach via a walk-off so we wouldn't have to lead the climbs. The first place we gave my brother's old rope a good field test was Jurassic Park, a sport crag above Lily Lake in Rocky Mountain National Park, with a tremendous view of the diamond face of Long's Peak. Tan granite fins lined the approach gully jutting out of the steep south side of Lily Mountain. There was apparently a nice 5.6 and a 5.7 and a 5.8 that we walked right past on our way to the fin, a sharp 60-foot-high wing at the top of the gully. Nick knew nothing. I knew just a little bit more than nothing. Here's Nick. I think I generally go into climbs with you trying not to think about anything. That's generally what I do because I, I know that I'm going to be scared beyond my gourd. There were two distinct reasons for my first real whipper publisher's decision to put a photo of a guy climbing the classic The Edge of Time on the cover of the guidebook, and me being foolish enough to think I could just run up a slightly run-out 5'9 climb in a place I'd never climbed before. It didn't matter that we were 5'8 climbers on a good day. Did you think I could lead it? I mean, did you think you could lead it? Or did you think I could lead it? No, I, my glass is pretty half-empty on most things that we climb, unfortunately. Um, did I think that you could lead it? Well, I knew you would try, because you definitely have, you know, the piss and vinegar where you're going to try it no matter what. The problem is, is if that if you couldn't do it, that means I had to try and do it. So, I guess when it boils down to it, did I think I could do it? No. Did I think you could do it? I think you had a 50-50 chance. <laughs> the edge of time is not a sport climb with an abundance of positive holds, or bolts. Just below the second bolt, about 25 feet off the ground, I was not filled with confidence. You can see the sweat forming you can see all of a sudden you got you know uh pit stains underneath your arms and you're only towards the second bolt and things are not looking good for you i fought an overwhelming urge to pee my pants run home to iowa and give my mom a hug i could tell that you were you were gonna go you weren't you weren't gonna make this and um you know despite me saying you know yeah you got it in my mind i was like you you gotta fall pretty quick here that's that's really what's gonna happen Desperate, I reached for a hold that was way smaller than it looked from below, upsetting the delicate balance I had on the three other granite nubs barely providing enough friction to hold my toes and the fingertips of my other hand. And then, then you went. <laughs> and as you came down, I went into the rock, which was a new experience for me. I was falling. Or as my buddy Lee says, dynamically down climbing. Falling is why people who don't climb, don't climb, even though they'll tell you they're scared of heights. 
Heights never killed anybody. Falling off heights sure did. When you are no longer touching the rock, no one can save you except your climbing partner and the good folks who work at Blue Water Ropes Incorporated in Carrollton, Georgia. If everyone has done their job, you won't slam into the ground and get two broken ankles. Of course, you might do what I did and take a ride through the pine tree just to the left of the route. The tree will slash your pants and your right butt cheek on one of the branches as you careen towards the ground, bouncing your elbow off the rock, flapping your arms like wily e. Coyote flying through the air, 10 feet down, 20 feet down. Nick caught me when my feet were about 12 inches off the ground. My shirt sleeve started to soak through with blood leaking out of my stinging elbow. We looked at each other like two goofy burglars who had just driven their getaway car through the front window of the police station. Our friendship took another step towards solidarity that day. My brother's rope connected us together. You're talking about a situation that's close to marital. I mean, you're talking about a commitment. You're talking about somebody's life, really. Every time Nick and I tied ourselves together, it was an opportunity for us to save each other's lives or kill the other person. At least that's what it felt like. It's probably as close to marriage as I'll ever get. After a couple years of obsessive use, it became time to retire my brother's old rope as a lead rope. It was getting too worn to trust it to handle a 20-foot whipper, of which there were many more. By that time, climbing had become an identity for me, and large portions of my disposable income were diverted into buying climbing guidebooks to take into the bathroom to read on the toilet so I could dream about climbing on Saturday and Sunday while my butt fell asleep. I've learned incredible balance, perseverance, strength, and something like courage, although it probably doesn't look much like courage when I'm swearing and singing to myself out on the sharp end, ten feet above my last piece of protection, a rack of gear clattering off my shaking legs. I had a recent conversation with a friend about whether a gift should be something the recipient wants or something the giver wants the recipient to have. If it's something someone wants you to have, it can often miss the mark completely, especially if it's a sweater. But in some cases, people really nail it with a gift. When you put the rope in the box for Christmas that year, did you think I was going to become a climber, or were you just kind of like, oh, what the hell, I'm just going to give him this rope, I'm not using it, whatever? Uh, it was more like, I hope you want to go out climbing because you're living in Arizona and this is a cool place to be at. So. And do you remember how I reacted? I don't think you were super thrilled about it because you're like, well, I got to buy all the fucking gear then. So. <laughs> yeah. And he was right. I didn't get it. I didn't see any of what was coming because he gave me that rope. There's no plane ticket my brother could have bought me that would have taken me somewhere better than where my climbing rope has. Red Rocks, Garden of the Gods, Lumpy Ridge, Vedawoo, Boulder Canyon, Eldorado Canyon, the desert outside Moab, and the high peaks in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, the Tetons. All places a kid from Iowa could dream about spending years of vacation time seeing. In a few years, habits I've picked up from climbing have spilled over into the rest of my life. When I'm not sure about something, I consider my options, but not for too long, and then I head in what I think is the right direction. I dyno. I click send. I pick up the phone. I ask for a raise. I say fuck it, and I go for it, whatever it is, because I don't want to back down from anything for fear of falling or failing. There's a tenacity there that's come from long approach hikes with a heavy pack full of gear, nervously sending highball boulder problems somewhere by myself, 
are climbing above gear knowing there are two alternatives. Stick the next move upward or take a huge fall downward. A can-do attitude makes my eyes light up when my friends mention a dream, big or small. I become a salesman of living big, offering encouragement that might progress to the point of shit-talking. I mean, if I can talk myself up the first 25 completely unprotectable feet of pear buttress, why can't I convince you to take a road trip with me? Or quit your job to go back to school or open a restaurant? Or enter a 24-hour race? Or eat the entire gut buster at Big City Burrito? I did one ropeless climb once, the third flat iron in Boulder. And somewhere all alone on the thousand-foot face, I realized I don't climb just to climb. I do it to share an experience with someone. Getting up early, hauling heavy packs, cracking jokes, pushing our limits, keeping each other from freaking out. Sharing the gigantic bag of peanut M&Ms I take along every time I go climbing. There was a time on Notch Top with Lee, one of my first alpine climbs, standing on a foot-wide ledge 300-some feet off the ground and miles from the trailhead, when I got the ropes stuck, then stuck worse trying to free them. I remember trying to wrap off the back of the first flat iron with Brian and Sarah in 50-mile-an-hour winds, throwing the ropes down only to watch them fly sideways parallel to the ground to the other side of the formation, where the knot we'd tied in the end promptly got stuck. Or the time I dragged Nick up the Durrance route on Devil's Tower in 90-degree heat, despite the fact he hadn't climbed in months and neither of us had ever climbed an off-width. These moments pack a thousand favors, handshakes, and hugs into one solid memory, where we look at each other and say, Remember that shit? and laugh and shake our heads. Is there a statute of limitations on finding something you're passionate about? Is there a certain age when learning something new becomes too much to take on, or we become afraid to fail, or afraid to let others see us fail? What makes us say, I ski, I don't snowboard, or mountain biking's too dangerous for me? Or maybe 10 years ago when I was in high school, but I'm way too out of shape to run a half marathon now. What stops us? Is it just easier to choose the safety and comfort of living vicariously? By my late 20s, I certainly wasn't old, but I had things pretty well figured out. I didn't think anything was going to come along and make me rearrange my life around it. Certainly not my brother's re-gifted rope. I had a pretty good handle on what I was and what I wasn't. I'd been a student, a bartender, a brother, a son, an inmate, a friend, an altar boy, a disappointment, a mediocre athlete, a factory worker, a dreamer, an alcoholic, a graduate, a news desk employee. Did you read the Sunday paper about the strong stomach 25? In life, you get the chance to be many things to a lot of people and to yourself. If you're lucky and somebody drops a rope in your lap and you can add climber to your list, You might get a few opportunities to reach inside yourself and stretch that rope up to a place where you get to be your own hero for a few minutes. Thanks, Chad. Picture-taking tourist, the war was half a deal. The natives can't believe it, it all seems so unreal. Writer and climber Brennan Leonard lives and works in Denver. He's currently working on his first book. Additional editing help today by Becca Cahal. Music for the show is provided by Iota Promonet. Cuts today by Clues, Kokolo, Willie Nelson, and Rodriguez. You can find information and stream the songs at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. If you've got a question or comment, please feel free to email us at dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. 
we've got some great stories coming up before our summer break, and after that, I'll be heading out to dig up next season's stories. So if you've got some tips or thoughts, let me know. Hospitals for flowers, the matron ladies cried. It's getting to be summer. That's right. I've got flip-flops on. I'm working on my tan. Actually, I'm not working on my tan. It's not going so well. But the clothes I need for chilling this summer, I can find them at Patagonia.com. Check out their summer line. It's up. It's running. It's that time of year. Additional funding for the diaries comes from New Belgium Brewery. I'm Fitzko Hall. That was Brennan Leonard. You've been listening to the Dirtback Diaries. Read the Sunday paper, though you may disagree about the maiden voyage of poets A to Z.